from the British Blacklist and today I'm joined by Artistic Director of the Unicorn Theatre, Justin Aldibert. So hey, how are you doing Justin? I'm alright Hannah, but um, like everybody, you know, uh, like you're, you're, you're never quite on sure ground in the middle of this pandemic, so you know, sh- shift, shifting shifting ground beneath my feet, but I'm doing alright. Yeah. I'm trying to you know, try muddle my way through it. I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, lockdown. So it's been very intense. Do you feel like you've learned anything new about yourself during this period? Oh, that is a really good question. So, uh, yeah, I suppose, don't get me wrong, I really miss my colleagues and I really miss being in an office and that stuff. But I have actually quite enjoyed, you know, I think I've been quite productive in lots of ways. And I've got a little um, two-year-old daughter, so I've probably had more time with her because that's just how it's been. That's been lovely. But my big revelation in lockdown is um, one of my old uni friends become a Pilates teacher. So so she, she's a school teacher as well, but she was she basically, when she decided to start doing her Pilates again, and so I've been doing Pilates on Zoom. And uh, I'll be honest, I played football, like, I stopped playing, like, last year, but I basically played since I was a kid till I was 38 or whatever. I mean, I've got classic football. I've got, like, really, really horrifically tight hamstrings and, like, dodgy uh, legs. So doing the Pilates in Zoom, I've, like, really got into it. So I'm, like, disciplined in my Pilates now. I've kept it going as well. Even when we came out of lockdown, I kept Pilates up. So I feel like that's my... That's my revelation. I tried to do yoga before, but I know that yoga does wonderful things and people love it. But I could never get quite past the kind of self-consciousness of the spirituality bit of it. So, Do you think, because you're a director, isn't it? Do you think you're going to bring any of the Pilates things into the rehearsal room? So, again, interestingly, when you're a director, you spend most of your time, like I am now, I'm talking to you, hunched over, leaning forward towards people. Mm-hmm. Because you're always being conciliatory to people, you see. So, uh, hopefully now, I'll do less of that and I'll be very upright. And uh, <laughs> uh, that, that'll be the way that I'll be directing it. Where it, where it I'll be back to being conciliatory before, so before long, I'm sure. I mean, I think all my process has always been really quite a physical aspect to the production. So it's just having another tool in the kit for that, really. So, you know, probably in some ways, yeah, I can see it, I can see it appearing. I wanted to talk a bit about your route into theatre. How far was theatre an important influence on your life when growing up in South London? I actually get asked this quite a bit, because I think probably quite unusual in that I lived in social housing, I lived in shared ownership housing, my parents were together and we lived in a house they had a mortgage on. But I've kind of lived across like a big section of society in that way. So that's kind of unusual. And yeah, like don't come from a privileged background. I went to an amazing school, the very high achieving academic cool school. And I went to university in 1999, which was the first year that there was, and, and I would say this, my parents 100%, there was no way I was ever not going to further education. But the context of that, Hannah, is that, you know, I was the first year where everybody had to pay fees in 1999. Like, the fees were introduced the year before, but some people deferred, so they didn't have to. But by my year, everybody had to pay fees. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And we, you know, we all got to university and protested and so on and so forth. But, you know, those fees, which felt astronomical at the time, were £1,000 a year. And, like, now those fees are, yeah, exactly right. Or smiling because you know it's ludicrous me complaining about a thousand pounds a year when it's now nine thousand pounds a year more than nine thousand two hundred or something something like that. Neither of my parents went to university. My dad went back and through his work did get a degree later on in life, but he neither went to university as you know in a conventional sense. But you know that as they were big on education, reading and learning and all that stuff. So they, I was always going to go to university. Would that be true of a kid from my background now? I, I don't know. Like, that's a complicated thing because the debt you'd be saddled with. Like, 
I, I don't know what that amount of money would mean to, to be burdened with that level of debt. You know, it's huge. So I'm 39 now, and I think in the next year I will pay off the money that I borrowed to go to university. And I've always had a job. Like, I've had a job since I was 16. When you look at what nine grand a year is, I don't know. Like, are you ever going to pay that money back if you're going to be a theatre director? So I think that would make a massive difference now to whether I became a theatre director. I'm just being really honest. But I went in 99, and my parents always told me I could do whatever I wanted to do, and I believed them. And, I, and like, I can only give them enormous praise and credit for being like, you can do whatever you want, mate, you just got to work. My mum really liked going to like musicals and stuff, and we used to go like once a year to a musical or to a pantomime, that kind of thing. But my aunt who is no longer with us, but was very dear to me. She started to take me to see shows at the Royal Shakespeare Company when I'd go and stay with them in the holidays. And I guess that really was the thing that got me in. And then went to university and became an independent theatre-goer of my own accord. So I say this to say that I'm being really grateful for those influences, really important. And then I was at university and I didn't do drama, I did history and politics. It was a drama society at Sheffield, and that drama society, basically, you had essentially the keys to this old church that had been converted into a drama studio. You were basically just like, you guys look after it, you program the plays, you do the things, which is the best way of learning anything, because you are then encouraged to explore your own creativity, your own thing. You know, and I actually went with a collection of people who are now all work in the industry. So Alan Lane, who runs Slung Low, um, James Green and George Perrin, who used to run Paint Plow, and now a producer called Paul Jealous, Lucy Preble, the playwright, Dave DC Moore, the playwright. Mm. So we all were the same kind of age and all in this drama society. Not that we didn't take our studying seriously, but in a way, like the drama society was more important than the studying at university. It was the thing you did all the time. And it was taking shows to Edinburgh or the National Student Drama Festival or whatever. If I was to look at it now, you'd go, would you do that if you're paying nine grand a year for your history and politics degree? I mean, I really didn't do much in my degree. You know, I'm sure my tutors would be like, you know, I'm being honest, you know, like, I really didn't. But I did do loads of learning, and I did loads of, you know, going to lectures I'd never been to or watching Hungarian films or whatever else. Like, I did loads of stuff. I just didn't do my degree that much. You know, then I got a taste, and I could just do it a load. And I was a teacher for a bit, which you teach you a lot about people. And then I did the Masters at Birkbeck. Again, I was lucky because it's in London. I could stay for one year at my mum's flat. And I, again, I did this just before the credit crunch. So I did it in 2006, 2008. And there was quite a lot of money in the economy still, you know. And like I wrote to trusts and foundations, like the Skinner's Trust, Lawrence Howard Skinner's Trust. I wrote to like, Rick, like Alan Akeborn's foundation gave me money. I wrote to like Tom Stoppard and David Hare and just said, can you help me out? I just wrote to the agents and people were really kind, like, you know, wrote back 50 quid or 100 quid or, you know, like whatever. But again, I, I look at that now and I go, the door to that is not as open that, like, you know, there's not that thing. And the fees for that course, which is a brilliant, brilliant course, you know, so you do a year of tour classes and then you do a year where you go to a theatre and you're the like assistant director for the year. Oh, cool. So, you know, the fees for my thing was £3,750. And obviously, that's a lot of money, but it's not like an insurmountable amount of money because I could have, the first year I could live for free. And then Alan Lane, essentially, I lived with Alan Lane, who was living in Leeds by then, and he basically charged me like a peppercorn rent to live with him. So I look at it and I go, well, I had a lot of people help me out and a lot of like things that helped me out to get to the position to be a theatre director. Mm -hmm. and I, at the same time, like I do think there's a bigger awareness of class barriers and ethnic barriers and stuff now than there were when I was coming up to do things. So it was obviously the passion for like messing about in that drama studio that got me into wanting to be in the theatre, do you know what I mean? And like watching shows. But I don't know if, is there the space now for people to make those choices? I don't know. But in that sense, 
it's interesting that you're artistic director of the Unicorn Theatre specifically because of that theatre is specifically aimed towards educational initiatives. Firstly, how does that link with what you've said before? Like, do you think that you are able to carry out some of these access things through the theatre? And also, um, how important do you think it is that young people have access to theatre from a young age? So that's the thing I think is most vital. And there's some research on this that actually, if you are exposed to live theatre before the age of eight, it does wonders for your ability to imagine yourselves in other scenarios and all that kind of stuff in a way that film and television don't. My good colleagues at the New Victory Theatre in New York, which is kind of the unicorn in New York, they've got a whole bit on their website all about this. It really aids imagination and all those things. Because I suppose, you know, the initial investment of theatre is, or the kind of theatre that we make, is you need to suspend sleep and the audience need to do some work and, like, imagine some of the stuff. I think all theatre should do that, to be honest, but we definitely have to do that in our theatre. So it's, I think you can have an enormous impact in a place like the Unicorn, where you make really high-quality theatre and art. The audience are also really honest. Nobody in the Unicorn ever sits down at the Unicorn and is like, politely claps you at the end. <laughs> like, they, they have no interest in doing that. They don't even understand what that idea is, which is brilliant, you know? Right? That's so exciting. There's an essay by Sarah Kane, which is all about why theatre is never as interesting as football. But in the Unicorn, it can be as interesting as a football match because actually the kids, they'll just say what they want mm-hmm. in that moment, you know? And like my favourite thing anyone's ever said at a Unicorn show... Sir, you told us we were going to the theatre. That was much better than going to the theatre. Oh, that's so lovely. And I loved that. Like, I was like, wow, you know. So uh, the fact that the audience are unflinchingly honest is, is really good. And also, uh, selfishly, to get better at being a theatre director, if your audience is really honest with you, you can see what you've got to do. Mm-hmm. Like, the audience tells you a lot about the play. I think it's also really fair to say that we commission a lot of shows in a year, partly because the shows are shorter. So the shows tend to be under 90 minutes and because we're doing a big age range. And so the sheer range of artists that you can work with is really, in the programming sense, is really exciting. Obviously not at the moment because there's no life theatre, but in normal life, in normal life is really exciting. But I do think where I'm wary, I think theatre can be really empowering for young people. I don't think it should be the tool by which you teach people, if that makes sense. Like, I think it's a slightly different thing. Like, I think it can inspire and it can open possibilities up 100% and it can empower people. But a play that was about, like, teaching people things isn't that interesting. Because actually, the great thing about plays or piece of performance is they're messy and complex. I suppose that does teach you things because dealing with things that are messy and complex teaches you things. But that's not didactic in a way. It's the start of a conversation. So when we get our programming right, that's what it's doing. So this idea of having a variety of shows each season, let's talk about the upcoming season for the Unicorn Theatre. What I found really impressive when I was looking through the website is that so many theatres at the moment are really concerned about, you know, how they're going to be programming things at the moment, where the money is coming from. But you seem to have at least like four different shows running at this time. How have you managed to keep the theatre active and creating? Thank you, Hannah. That's really nice to say. So uh, I would love to say it was because we knew this was coming and we made a mad, madly brilliant plan to deal with our COVID possibilities. But um, in all honesty, we were incredibly lucky as when lockdown kind of became imminent. The brilliant people at the Backstage Trust and Susie Sainsbury stepped forward and said, we would really like you to be able to keep doing stuff. So what can we do to help you do that? And basically I said, well, it'd be great if we could make some like digital theatre. And I put together this pitch of programmes thinking they'd give us the money for like one or two of them. And they really brilliantly went, that all sounds great. Yeah, let's do that. Oh, 
and basically funded us. Uh, and then Bloomberg Philanthropies and the Harriet Trust stepped in and said, "Well, we'd like to help support this as well." So essentially, the reason we've kept making things is for no other reason than we got given money discreetly to make things and digitally. I have to say, like, it's been brilliant for us as an organisation. You know, for morale, like, people that make theatre and want to work in theatre, they want to make it. So, so most of our staff have been involved as we've made stuff. We've been able to bring people out furlough. We've been able to do stuff. We've been able to work with artists that we like and admire. We've just finished filming and editing on The Grim Tales. I really love BJ and Shivani's work. I really love Ola Ince's work. Really love Tristan Finadelli's work. You know, obviously, I know Rachel Rex already. It's great. I can get people that I really admire to come and give them jobs. And then the brilliant cast they brought, Cecilia Noble and the Gas of Chocolat. And it's great. I have to give special mention to our production team who really like So, Jen, our head of production, just got on top of all the COVID health and safety stuff. Like, that's the other thing. Because we knew we had money to do some digital stuff, mm-hmm. we could really like get ahead on all the health and safety stuff and that has again made a difference because that stuff costs money and you know you've got to reconfigure your theatre so that people can come in one way system it's crazy and obviously Ned Bennett and Zubin and Vala and Martina doing the twits you know so yeah it's been really great I've really enjoyed watching particularly my family we were watching Anansi over the summer it was very fun I mean you've got Anansi coming back on the season yeah I grew up with the Anansi stories like my my granddad told me about Anansi yeah and I just wondered, is it because you had them growing up? Was that the reason you wanted to dramatise them? Right. People think when you run a theatre, when you're a director, that you just get to do whatever you want to do. That's what people think the job is. <laughs> and you kind of realise when you get the job, oh no, there's loads of existing relationships, you've got to work out you know, how you're going to manage those, there's mm-hmm. other commissions that exist. Those and anyway, we were sat around, and interestingly, when I had interviewed for the job, you get asked, what, what was your dream season be? How was your dream season? And, and, and the answer to this was something that I did talk about then. I said, oh, well... I would like to explore myths that travel around the world because I think that's really interesting. I'm really interested in oral history and folk stories and what they mean to people and all that kind of stuff. But it was a really casual thing at my interview, you know. And we were sat around planning my... Because obviously they were a stage show before they were the digital show. We were sat around planning for my first season because I had a season where I was looking after shows that my predecessor Plenty program, and then my first season. And we just couldn't find a show for three seven year olds, and we were all sat around talking about it in artistic planning. What we're going to do, we're going to do it. And Annalise, who was then the executive director, went... Why don't you do what you talked about at the at your job interview? You sounded really passionate about it. You know the stories. So I did some R&D on it and just had a brilliant cast of R&D, had a brilliant cast of the, when we did the show, same thing. And we just all had a really great time doing it. So then when it came to the digital thing, we were like, what should we make digitally? To be honest, in lockdown, we've done so much digital learning and quite good at it. But we came from a position of not having done any of it, which is the weird thing. I've got a new executive director, Bailey. And Bailey was like, well, why don't you do it, Nancy? Because when we did the show, we sold out completely. And so basically, both the times, the idea had nothing to do with me. I just did it. <laughs> uh, like, other people went, you should do that. But I think why it's a good example of the kind of work we make and we want to make is um, the connection people had with it. It takes the parents back to their own lives. And the kids leave going, what language were they singing? You know, And then they ask questions and they go, well, we're singing in tree. And what's tree? That's the Ghanaian language. And why are they singing in that? And then... Why did the stories go to Jamaica? Well, they went there because of the slave trade. Like, mm-hmm. you start in a conversation. That really interests me. The creative team on that show, Shadisa, the designer, Duramani, everybody just came to it. Everybody just wanted to put it you know, into an Nancy's heart. And that was the joy of it. And I think you can see that. And you can even see that in the digital version. Yeah, like, definitely. You can see they had fun doing it. We all had fun messing around making it. You know that that was filmed. They're all in their own flats. <laughs> so basically, it was in peak lockdown, right? So we had to, like, taxi all the stuff to them. 
Oh my god. So they had to have like rubber gloves to get it all out of the Ubers and like wipe it all down. <laughs> then they had to like all do their own like costume and hair and I'm just jabbering away at them on Zoom. It's impressive because they have so much energy. And if they're cultivating that energy by themselves in their own flat, that's, that's so impressive. And they don't know like what the other people are doing. Do you mean? So they're <laughs> recording each part separately and you're like, gotta make that up. But that's the other thing is all the digital stuff we've done, we've worked with this company, Illuminations. Their specialism is doing film things of theatre. Like, I've never made a film, and they've just been so kind. They're really patient with us and really great. And I think they've really enjoyed making all the things, to be fair. We were lucky in that I think we kind of got in first with them, and they're, like, one of the best companies. Again, we weren't starting from scratch. We were starting from a company that has some experience on it. You always need other partners, like good partners, basically. Looking for good partners, especially during lockdown, when people have been looking for so much work, it's really cool that you can still find those creative partnerships. So, Anansi is coming back this October as part of the Black History Month programme. I mean, obviously this summer, we've seen a lot of discussions surrounding Black Lives Matter. So my first question was, how did you select what shows to programme this Black History Month? Even though we furloughed lots of people, people were in and out of furlough because they were working on things, we had conversations about what was happening. Emotions were very high amongst our staff. And Auntie was up when the social media blackout day was. Mm -hmm. So we had a big meeting about that. We spoke to everyone, what do you guys want to do? Do you want to bring this down? If people want to do that, we should respect that and do that. And the big feeling was, particularly from the cast and creative team, was actually for young people, we want something that's joyful and celebrates black culture and heritage and history and tradition and like, don't take it down. And actually, loads of people started to send people to watch Nancy. And so it did feel like this is a thing that we should bring it back. Just before the school break up, I spent a week just chatting to teachers as much as I could. And actually, they were like, we really would love some artistic material as an entry point into discussions that we want to have with our students. So the teachers led Nancy coming back, really. And then alongside it, we decided that we wanted to re-look at what our learning resources were around the show. So our learning associate, Kath, worked with Sam Adams, who's a brilliant drama therapist and performer and stuff, to really go back in and look at the roots of the stories. And so, in essence, they've done a resource pack that kind of gives teachers a kind of starting point for a conversation about colonialism and the slave trade and mm -hmm. what that means. And it feels like that conversation being for that much younger age, in some ways, the further you're upstream, the more impact you can have. I also saw that you'd done another project with a youth group, The Magnificent Life uh, of Claudia Jones. Yeah, yeah. So basically, that's a gorgeous project. Every year, imagining the year's a normal year, not a COVID year, um, we partner with three schools, a primary school, a secondary school, and a special needs school, and we develop our, our learning resources alongside them for the year. So they come and see loads of shows, but then we go into there and do workshops with them and then develop resources that teachers then use elsewhere. And um, we were working with a really brilliant school called Gary Gates Hospital School, and they were really brilliant. They're, they're like fiercely smart kids that like they're really interesting they challenge you they question you they're deeply political and then what normally happens at the end of that is you spend a week intensively they come to the theater and they make something in the theater but obviously covid just completely stopped that so we said to them well what about if we try and do this as a piece of digital theater on zoom etc et and uh stefan mihailovic and david gilbert who've worked together before on one of these stories for us directed this piece and at the time we decided we would go ahead with it, the news came out that Notting Hill Carnival would be cancelled. And so off the back of that, it felt like, actually, let's do something that is about Notting Hill Carnival. I mean, her life is incredible. So it was a thing that fitted the moment, but 
you know, again, you're always just trying to do things that are the values of your institution. And, mm-hmm. You know, essentially, Claudia Jones, she was about the people expressing themselves artistically. And then these brilliant young women, they jumped into it with both feet. They were so engaged. And I think, I don't want to talk for them, but it seemed from the workshops that I observed that they wanted that conversation as well i think a lot of what you're saying about bringing in these conversations at an earlier stage it's fine for children to be exposed to these messages that's hopefully how we'll see lasting change and things like what society at large but also the theater industry with that in mind have you as an artistic director noticed any changes as a result of the conversations happening this summer within your building or within the theater industry at large covid has changed the world absolutely but more importantly than how it's changed the world is it's just highlighted the things that were already deeply, deeply unfair and, and unjust in the world anyway. That's my view. It's just highlighted them. You look at all the statistics, people from um, diverse ethnic backgrounds have been far more affected in all ways across the board, you know, than white affluent people. That's the absolute truth. I think we're moving to a place where there is, like, accepting that it's institutionally racist. I think we're moving to a place where theatre's getting that idea. I think one of the interesting things around that, and we're doing thinking about this as, as a unicorn, is that as a proportion, lots of the people in the least secure jobs are people from ethnic diverse backgrounds, and they might be front of house staff, so on and so forth. Obviously, this is a horrifically bad time for all the people in that position. So... I think there's a lot of thought as to when we come back, when there is like performance, how can you change the nature of those roles? How can you make sure that the senior leadership teams in theatres have succession plans whereby it's not just going to be white people, you know, that they are truly inclusive and truly diverse. I think the same thing is true of boards and chairs of boards and what that is going to mean. Obviously, I'm sure you're aware of pull up or shut up. Yeah, no, I was yeah. actually going to ask you about that. Yeah, so it was really interesting when it came out. I cannot tell you the number of times I'm asked to talk about diversity by people. And I'm like, I don't think me talking about it is interesting. Like, I'm not going to make it any better. Like, I'm going to do what I can do at my organisation. Mm-hmm. And we try and do good practice. And we don't always do good practice. I can look at where we can get better. I think what's great about Bullet Job is everyone had to declare their stats. And then yeah. everyone had to be like, this is where you're at, guys. And then if in three years' time, that is not better, well... That's there in black and white. I don't mean that, but I guess it is. You know, like, I kind of loved it in a way. Like, just the declaration of it, it feels good to me. That is going to move things forward. So, I don't know this 100%, but I would imagine the Unicorn is probably the only theatre in London, and probably therefore in the UK, theatre where the previous artistic director was a person of colour and then the current artistic director is a person of colour. That's probably, I, I don't know, but I can't think of another one. Maybe there is one and I've not thought of one. But, you know, our senior leadership team and executive directors, that's not the case. Do you know what I mean? Like, so we've got work to do. Mm-hmm. And you cannot, to go back to how we started this conversation, Hannah, the cold hard truth is that's going to be linked to cash and what you pay people. Because the chances are, proportionally, people from ethnic diverse backgrounds are probably, it's not always the truth. It's like, of course it isn't. But I'm just saying, when you look at the overall statistics, from less wealthy backgrounds or less inherited wealth backgrounds, and so therefore, to make being a theatre director, producer, executive director, whatever, a viable finance director in a theatre, viable choice, you've got to remunerate them to do that. And actually, the system works in a way at the moment where everybody in theatre works when the theatres are working, 
more than an hour for not as much pay as they should get. Mm-hmm. If you keep that system up, you're basically upholding a system of white supremacy. And people like myself are the exceptions to the rule. So I suppose what I'm saying is at the moment, whilst everything is utterly shit, um, I do think it does give you the time to think, okay, it's utterly shit right now. If we're going to make a thing better when we come back, what are the big things we can do to change it to come back and be better? I hope from the unicorn where I'm responsible, you'll see improvements and you'll see things better and you'll see better terms and conditions and pay and stuff. We won't stop everything. It's a process, you know what I mean? But there's no excuse for not making strides. There's literally no excuse. You'll never get a better chance to get your house in order. I know. I think these sort of questions are very important right now in terms of Black History Month that a lot of institutions are asking black creatives to come in and do work but not necessarily paying them in a way that actually right. justifies the work but also what about the rest of the year like what about the other months yeah. they should be black history month as well i've been following the black curriculum and brilliant thing that samelia set up beyond the canon it does go back to you know we've got to start this stuff early because the young people don't know when they know they're going to change stuff no, no, definitely think the biggest thing I've noticed is how young, like I said, my little sister is having these conversations at school at the moment, which is so exciting to see because, I mean, I wasn't having conversations necessarily on the level that she's having now until I got to university. And so it's so important in any situation, being able to recognise that you do have the power to criticise politics, regardless of whether it's just race. You know, it's very powerful. Well, we're going to move on to some quick-fire questions now. Sorry, I'm a bit of a talker. Shut up. I'll be quick with these. <laughs> um, so the first question is a book that you have to have in your collection. Um, probably... Tattoo? Uh, yeah, go on. Tony Morrison's Song for Solomon and Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses, which is controversial. <laughs> um, a song or album that defines the soundtrack of your life to date? Great question. Uh, I probably boringly have to say Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, a film or TV show that you will watch whenever it's on repeatedly? Excepting season five, The Wire. <laughs> um, like seasons one to four of The Wire. Like, the best <laughs> and, and I do love Dirty Rock as well. It's ridiculous, but really fun. And finally, oh no, not finally, the first play you saw and what it meant to you and or reminds you why you're in this business. I went age five to the City and Sweep show at the Kenneth Moore Theatre in Ilford. And for my fifth birthday, I got on stage and made my birthday cake with it saying, Izzy Wizzy, let's get busy. <laughs> and I imagine that's probably why I'm a theatre director. Because I was like, what? That's a thing? <laughs> <laughs> that's so cute. And finally, what's made you sad, mad and glad this week? What has made me mad is, unfortunately, the general incompetence in the way that the pandemic has been managed at a political level and the communications around that and the lack of clarity and stuff that has made me pretty pretty uh, mad sad the passing of both ken robinson and ruth bader ginsburg pretty sad both of those legends glad i should have something to make me glad this week what has made me glad this week i, I think Selfishly, the edits of the Grimms, they look great, so that has made me glad, but that is selfish and small-minded, but I have enjoyed that. I find uh, the fact that people, to me, seem to be much more engaged with their political lives around them is, I think, a thing that people should be, should be glad about. I think that is true. Yeah, no, I agree. And just to finish off the interview, do you have any other projects that you want to talk about that are coming up? So, yes, we are not going to open for Christmas, very sad. 
but we did a show called Huddle uh, a couple of years ago, which was about a dad emperor penguin who has to raise his little daughter on his own. And we might have brought it back this around this time, but we obviously can't because of but we are going to make a really kind of gorgeous, I think it's going to be 10, 15 minute version of it using the whole of the unicorn with the actor Joseph. What's Joseph's surname? Oh, I can't remember Joseph. Barnes Warren? Sorry, Joe, I feel terrible now. I forgot your surname. Um, walking around the building, looking sadly at his penguin costume, which I think is going to be really pretty gorgeous. Uh, probably going to end in a great big snowdrop or something it'll be real it'll be super cute it'll be super cute so we've got that coming up filming in the next couple of weeks yeah so will that be out around christmas will we be able to that'll be out christmas, oh yeah. lovely that's christmas present to everybody that's so lovely um and finally can you remind us where we can catch anansi the spider or any of the other shows that are on at the moment at the unicorn so the Twits, Anansi and Grimms will all be on the Unicorn Theatre's YouTube channel. So you can subscribe or just, just go to youtube.com and do Unicorn Theatre. But they are also on our website, which is www.unicorntheatre.com. Amazing. Thank you very much.